0: I heard about this uh, family that uh, cheered and rooted for University of Alabama football. They were real serious about it. Their daughter scheduled her wedding, and it happened to be on the day of a game day. When the game day came up, they went to the game instead of her wedding. That's how radical and sold out they were to Alabama football. Now, I don't know many other Alabama fans that way and, and, uh, and others, but there was nothing squishy about their commitment to Alabama football. In the United States, we've had some changes that have taken place. Uh, I recall that I learned most of the Christian faith my first 16 years in life from outside my home and from outside churches. I learned it from school teachers and from friends and from the general environment in Houston, Texas and Lemoore, California. And that's where I came to know much of the Christian faith, and I had a positive view of the Christian faith, had a positive view of Jesus and the Bible, and even without Christ in my life, I even found that there were times when uh, I actually defended the Christian faith and the walk. Now I wasn't born again yet, I hadn't come to Christ yet, but nevertheless, there was a positive bent in those areas in my heart and life that I learned from outside my home and from outside churches. Uh, now, when I did go to church on occasion, uh, I was positive about that too and learn some things but the truth is is that that uh, world doesn't exist in many other places or at least it doesn't exist with the intensity that it used to exist much of our world outside the churches and the homes is going the other direction now James Emery White has written a book entitled Generation Z that's a generation born after the millennials from about 1996 to 2000 uh, 14. Two of my four children are in that. There's some very positive things about that generation, but the world in which they're growing up is an enormous challenge to them in following Jesus Christ. Now, roughly, what you'll find is that in our world today, about 25% uh, would claim, to give or take a few percentage points, 25% would claim to be secular. That means that when they make a decision, when they decide about morals or about their spending or what to do on Sundays, God never factors into their decision-making process on anything. And it's not that they've been exposed to the Christian faith and have necessarily rejected it, though some have, it's just that they never think about it. They never contemplate it, okay? So this morning, I want to make it clear, when I talk about secularism, I'm not trying to develop people with the personality of an atomic bomb in a playground, I don't want us to be that way. But most of them simply don't even think about asking God or looking to His Word or looking for spiritual guidance in a local church. They are secular, and that group happens to be growing. Uh, On the other end, there happens to be those who are devout. They are devoutly committed to Jesus Christ, and roughly that's about 25%, give or take a few percentage points. Uh, These are folks that seek God in His Word. They seek God in prayer. They uh, listen to other godly uh, Christian folks give them counsel. They're constantly seeking after God for His way and His will in all of their decisions about what to do on Sundays, about what to do with their life, about uh, moral questions and moral issues, about marriage and family and raising children, the totality of their life. And the good news here is that those who are devout are growing more devout. They're more and more devout now than they ever have been. And they are more spiritually active than they ever have been. The challenge that we're facing happens to be the squishy middle. That's about 50% of the nation. Now, the squishy middle, what the squishy middle does is that it tries to check out and see where the cool people go. What are the cool people doing? It used to be that most of the cool people were somewhat familiar and open to the Christian faith. There was a consensus in the nation about Christian morality and a high view of Jesus Christ. And there was a positive view of that. And sometimes that was reflected on news broadcasts or programs and documentaries, conversations, literature, radio, other places uh, like that. Uh, And and, uh, that's oftentimes what, what they did. That's how they decided what they were going to do with their own lives. They weren't devout, but they were informed. And they were favorable towards the Christian faith. That has changed. And so now the squishy middle is actually looking towards the secularists in this day. And essentially what they're doing is that they're viewing the secularists as the cool people. It's the cool people that neglect and reject the Christian faith, reject God, and, or don't even consider Him at all. In other words, they do this. And though those winds swirl, they're swirling towards secularism. Now, that could change. That could change. I'm not setting a trajectory here for the next 25 years of our lives. I mean, one fresh touch from God can change a nation. It can. And I intend for us to be a part of that, at least locally and hopefully globally, uh, with our mission strategy. So uh, that's not necessarily the trajectory for the next 25 years. That's not necessarily the trajectory for the next 25 minutes. I mean, if the people get right with God and they seek Him with everything they've got, God will come through, and God can. Well, that's what we're looking at. And I'm calling that middle group the squishy middle. And frankly, that's not only true outside the churches, that's true inside many churches. The squishy middle is a constant temptation even in churches. And that's why I want to invite your attention to Acts chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 12. In Acts chapter 5, we find find a debate on the part of the apostles with the ruling elite that are against Jesus Christ. They've healed a man. The city has erupted in joy, in faith in Christ. And they try to tap this down, the Jewish rulers do, by imprisoning the apostles. But an angel comes in and pulls off a jailbreak and sends them back to the temple precincts to preach the gospel of Christ. They go looking for the apostles at jail and they're gone. And then somebody rushes in and says, not only are they gone, but they're right back doing what you told them not to do. They're sharing the gospel publicly, and they call them to account to bring them up front. And then you'll find the story beginning in chapter 5, verse number 33. Now put a finger in Matthew 12, and look with me in chapter 5, verse number 33. Now after they call them to account, here's what happened. And Peter preaches the gospel to them. Here is what uh, here is what we find about their response. Verse 33, When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them, the apostles. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. Uh, He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you can't overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now Gamaliel was a rather interesting individual. His... um, Uh, his uh, life commanded respect. His beliefs were some of the most conservative Jewish beliefs of the day. He believed in the supernatural and all the miracles of the Old Testament. He was very rigid and very meticulous and precise in how he practiced Judaism. He even tied the herbs that grew off his back porch. His position was uh, as a teacher of the law, and everyone respected him for that. His attitude was one of toleration, and he was willing to be restrained and to wait. And then his influence was great. In fact, you're very well aware of someone he influenced. He was the one that took a young man from Tarsus and began to teach him the law. And that man grew up to become Saul, eventually the apostle Paul. And that's who Gamaliel influenced. Now, he not only has respect, but he also has restraint. Verse 35 and verse 38 says, let's leave these men alone and see how this movement plays out. And if it is of men, it'll come to nothing. Now, if it's of God, we got to be careful. We don't want to fight against God. And and then the reasons happen to be found in verse 36 and verse number 37. He mentions Thaddeus, who in that day had come about and had led a movement, and it fell to pieces and apart whenever he died. And, And then there was Judas of Galilee. And he led a movement, and he was killed, and the movement fell apart. And the implication is, is that this movement of Jesus, well, he's died, and let's watch to see if it's going to fall apart. And that, these are the reasons of Gamaliel. But then there is some ruin of Gamaliel that is very subtle in the text, but Gamaliel makes three enormous mistakes. There are many people that applaud Gamaliel for his wisdom and restraint. I don't share that view. I don't share that view at all because he makes three mistakes. One is a false comparison. He compares Jesus with Judas of Galilee and Thaddeus. And that's no way to make a comparison. These individuals died, but Jesus rose again. Jesus attested by his miracles and preaching and fulfilled prophecy that he was sent from God, something Judas and Thaddeus could never do. There's a false comparison. There's a false criteria. And that is, well, if it works out, then it's of God. If it doesn't work, then it's, uh, it's not true. Ladies and gentlemen, that simply is the terrible criterion by which to measure something. Sometimes God's will is not done by human beings. Sometimes they, they, uh, they don't do what they're supposed to do. And just because something dies doesn't mean it was meant to, especially a movement. So there's a false criteria. Then there is a false conclusion. At the end of Gamaliel's speech, you need to understand Gamaliel is in the same place as his hostile and violent colleagues. They don't believe in Jesus and neither does he. What Gamaliel should have done is that he should have said, look, I've done a study of the Old Testament like Nicodemus, my friend like Joseph of Arimathea and some other Pharisees, and I've come to the conclusion Jesus is God's own Messiah. God anointed Him and has attested to Him, and I'm giving my heart and life to Him, and by the way, we'll see you later, maybe never, and I'm going to go join them and preach the gospel in the temple precincts. But that's not what He did after his elaborate and respected uh, grandstanding here in this group, after this moderate and temperate approach to the issue, he is still an unbeliever. He still is not given to Christ, and there is no evidence whatsoever that though this movement burgeoned and it grew in Jerusalem, some estimate the church in Jerusalem got up to 25,000, he still did not trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So for all of his restraint and all of his tolerance, he's just as lost as anyone else. Gamaliel then came to ruin. Vance Havner said about this passage, he said earlier, there is trouble to the church from without. Uh, They're they're opposed in the preaching of the gospel. There's trouble from within. Ananias and Sapphira earlier in chapter 5 are hypocritical. Now with Gamaliel, there's trouble on the fence. And that's what you find in this text. Gamaliel was part of the squishy middle. Now look with me in Matthew chapter 12, verse number 30. Look what Jesus had to say about this. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 30. This is Jesus' own commentary about the squishy middle. Those who are attempting to find out what the cool people are doing. Those who want to be respectable and appear to be liked by other people. This happens to be those who really put their finger in the wind to see how the culture is blowing. Some of you may be in that shape today. And this is Jesus' own commentary on the squishy middle in Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 30. Look there what what he says in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters Abroad, in Jesus' mind, and therefore in God's mind, and therefore in reality, there are only two categories of people in the world. There really aren't the secularists and the squishy middle and those that are uh, devout. That's not it at all. That's three categories. There are only two categories in the mind of Jesus. And that happens to be those who are for him and those who are against him. This crowd can be divided this morning into those two categories. Now, Jesus elaborates on that. He says, you're either like a shepherd and you gather sheep with me. In other words, you're active in gathering others with me. And you are publicly identified with me. You're on mission with me. So that's one category. The other category happens to be those who are wolves. You're like a wolf. You're either like a shepherd gathering with me, or you're like a wolf scattering sheep everywhere else. There, in other words, there's not a category of those who lead the sheep alone. Everyone is in one category or another. You and I are in one category or another. Gamaliel is in one category or another. Yet nevertheless, in some people's mind, there is this mythological world called the squishy middle, and God will have none of it. Jesus said the squishy middle is a myth. We're either for Jesus or against Him. We either gather others for Jesus like a shepherd or we scatter others like wolves. And Jesus in this text called for an inflexible sellout to Him. And that's why this weekend is so important in the life of our church. The 21st, we're asking all of our Sunday school teachers, deacons, and their wives to join us for a leadership banquet with David Burton where we're going to be encouraged to be for Jesus and like shepherds and gather others around Christ. On the uh, 22nd, we'll start off Sunday morning at 9.15 where your Sunday school class is going to get packed to the brim with lost people and members and folks that have not been here in a while. You're going to fill it up, and they're going to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 10.30, we'll hear from David Burton, and at 6 o'clock that night as well, it's going to be a great day in the life of Beach Haven Baptist Church. We're going to pray at 7.30 every morning and at noon, uh, every um, every noontime, and we're going to seek God and ask Him to bless us greatly. Now, if you want this to be a great day, it's as simple as A B C. A and I want you to say it with me, A-B-C. Attend all the services. B. Bombard heaven with prayer. And C. Collect all the people. Uh, As you leave today, you'll find, as you dismiss today, invite cards everywhere throughout the worship center. I've been able to give some away every week. In fact, it appears that uh, 1,000 or 2,000 disappear every week. You're taking them, and uh, we hope you're passing those out. So use those invite cards. And then invite your entire Sunday school role to be here Sunday morning. Find family, friends, anybody breathing, and get them here. If you doubt they're still breathing, shake them a little bit and encourage them to come anyway. So, during the invitation, October 22nd, in fact, when David Burton preaches, Jesus will call you to leave the squishy middle for an inflexible sellout to Jesus Christ. In fact, he'll call you to that today. Now, what does this mean? That means first... Leave the squishy middle for an inflexible public association with Jesus. After I preach, we're going to extend an invitation. And after David Burton preaches next Sunday, we're going to extend an invitation for you to leave the squishy middle and to make an inflexible public association with Jesus Christ. I remember in high school that it was easy to pick out those who were in the FFA, the Future Farmers of America, We had a very agricultural area where I lived uh, when I went to high school, and they all had these blue corduroy jackets with the big patch on the back of their name and patches on the breast, and and most generally wore blue jeans and boots. It was easy to pick them out. They would hang together, not, not exclusively, but they would hang together, and they liked to identify with each other publicly. The FFA did. It was easy to pick out the jocks as well. They usually wore their Letterman jacket, and with every championship or individual accomplishment in high school, we were given a medal. Now, I was part of about three championship teams, so I just had three medals. But Chuck Sterrett, who was a senior when I was a freshman, was a stud when it came to track and field. I mean, he was tremendous with hurdles and relays and other um, other track and field events. And Chuck had metal after metal that he would take and start pinning at the top of his shoulder all the way down to the bottom of his letterman jacket. And so Chuck would walk around and it would clang like a cheap car. It would clang over and over again. And you could hear Chuck from the next county when he was walking along. Those metals would clang and he would position them just so they would clang and bang up against each other. You know Chuck's dirt was coming. Well, Chuck hung out with some other jocks. And those of us that played uh, basketball, baseball, football, ran track, track and field or something else, we wore Letterman jackets with those medals and patches. and th- It was real easy to pick out the jocks. And they hung with one another. It was easy to publicly identify yourself with one another. That's what Jesus is calling for us to be in the world. We are to be publicly identified. We're not to be like Bob with his wife, Adrian. Oh my goodness, she wrote for some counsel one time. And here's what she said. Bob had become very embarrassed about her. And here's what she said. She said, Bob is embarrassed to be seen with me in public, said Adrian, 37 years old. A few weeks ago, we were getting ready to run errands. I was wearing an old blue jogging suit and when Bob saw me, he snapped. You look like somebody's fat grandmother. Don't you have something nicer? I didn't have the energy to argue with him. So I changed into a sweater and jeans. I know he thinks I'm not as pretty as the pencil-thin women in his office. Well, I gained 20 pounds with each of our two sons and no amount of dieting will make it go away. Bob can't deal with it. When we're with dinner with friends, he always makes a nasty remark about what I order. He'll even grab a cookie or donut out of my hands to keep me from eating it. This man is embarrassed to be seen publicly with his wife. And you know what? She's got a lot of company with some people who claim to follow Jesus. There are some people, even in churches and perhaps here today, that do not want to be identified with Jesus Christ. I'm telling you folks, they won't put a Jesus bumper sticker on their car, but they'll do something about angels or a political party or something else. I'm not much for bumper stickers on cars myself, but uh, the truth is they're more thrilled and excited about college football teams and more excited about uh, mythological movements among angels and more excited about their political views. I mean, just look at their social media post. That's oftentimes how it is. And that is a person in the squishy middle. Now look at the apostles in verse number 41. They were beaten, and so they departed from the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. In other words, they thought the apostles were so identified with Jesus that they treated the apostles the way they treated Jesus. They abused him. They were violent with them. They were so connected with Christ, it merited suffering on their part. There, there's no question about to whom they belong. There's no squishiness. They have an inf- inflexible public association with Jesus. So when you respond to the invitation this morning, you need to understand. Jesus is calling you to embrace a public identity and association with Him. Don't come this morning. Don't ever walk down the aisle unless unless you are willing to go public for Jesus. But if you're willing to go public for Jesus, you come on this morning. A public association. But then second, leave the squishy middle for an inflexible public advocacy for Jesus. Oh my goodness, about uh, 24, 25 years ago, Chuck Colson, the founder of Prison Fellowship, was awarded the Templeton Prize in Religion for his work with uh, Prison Fellowship. He'd been an aide in the Nixon office. He was Nixon's hatchet man. He went to prison because of Watergate and his involvement in it. He went there for seven months. God saved him radically. He got out, established prison fellowship around the world, and did a marvelous work uh, in many places on behalf of Christ. And the Templeton Foundation awarded him a million dollars for his work, his Christian work, with... That group. Now, he was called to accept the prize, and he went to Washington, D.C. to accept it. And he stood up before the nation's religious bigwigs. And uh, there are, of course, some Christians there. There are some who aren't certain what they are. There are some Buddhists and Hindus. There are some rabbis from Judaism that are there. And this is the tolerant crowd. This is the broad-minded crowd. This is the crowd that really wants to make room for all religions in the mind of men and women. And they preach tolerance. And here's what Chuck Colson said out of the gate with the first paragraph of his acceptance speech. He said, I speak as one transformed by Jesus Christ, the living God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He has lived in me for 20 years. His presence is the sole explanation for whatever is praiseworthy in my work, the only reason for my receiving this Templeton Prize. That is more than a statement about myself. That is a claim to truth. It's a claim that may contradict your own. And so in front of the impressive religiosity of the Templeton Prize in D.C., he took a public stand for Jesus Christ before that group. Well, listen, he's in good company because that's what the apostles do here in the text as well. Look at verse number 42. Daily in the temple and in every house, publicly and in home visitation, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, why did they do that? Well, they weren't like the Mormons who travel around today. They, they, they'll tell me, well, we think you're a Christian, and, and you, you ought to believe that we're Christians. And my thought is, well, if you think I'm a Christian, why do you keep trying to convert Baptists? They don't believe that. They don't believe that being Baptist is uh, adequate to make you right with God. And, and on one count, they're right. It doesn't matter what, who or what you are. You don't get to heaven. You don't get right with God by becoming a Baptist or Methodist, or Presbyterian, or Episcopalian, you get right with God by coming to Jesus Christ and trusting His cross and resurrection alone. But the notion is, but what I'm doing is demonstrating the fallacy of their thinking and the insincerity of their thinking. If they think Baptist or Christian, then quit trying to convert them. The thing is, they don't believe that. Well, this is what the apostles are doing. The apostles are trying to convert the Jews in Jerusalem because they believe Judaism is inadequate. To make men and women right with God. And they believe only Christ is adequate. The real Christian is not squishy about how other religions and philosophies and worldviews are inadequate. They believe inflexibly that Jesus Christ is the only hope. So, when you respond to the invitation today, know that Jesus intends to shape you as a public witness to that truth that everything else is inadequate, and Christ alone is adequate. Only He is the way, the truth, and the life. So don't come today. Do not respond to the invitation today unless you're willing to let Jesus shape you into that kind of person. But if you're willing to go public and advocate for Him and Him alone, you come. But there's a third thing here. Leave the squishy middle, then, for an inflexible public allegiance to Jesus. Now, allegiance in chapter 5 is very, very difficult uh, for the apostles to embrace. Look at verse number 13. You've got problems with the crowd there. None of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Well, that was entirely useless. They weren't willing to join them. And so you've got the whole crowd that's a bunch of nervous Nellies who won't join the apostles. Verse number 18. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. They had the powers to use the instruments of government to punish them with prison. Verse number 20. Then the angel comes back and after their imprisonment, nobody likes them or won't stand with them, go stand in the temple and speak to all the people, all the words of this life. So they're commissioned to go back to the place where they got in trouble in the first place. Verse 25. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So they're taking a stand and infuriating the crowd. Verse 28. They respond to the apostles. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. We told you to shut up. And the truth is, you did more than you did before. You have filled Jerusalem's, uh, Jerusalem with your doctrine and you are bringing Jesus' blood upon our heads. And then verse number 29. This is why Peter and the apostles answered and said, well, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so look what took place in verse number 40. They agreed with him, Gamaliel that is, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Despite government orders, the apostles spoke. Now listen, conditions were unfavorable. They did not have the perfect opportunity to share the good news. By the way, you never will. There is never a perfect opportunity to tell people about Jesus. There's never a natural opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Telling people about Jesus is not natural. Therefore, it has to be supernatural. God has got to intervene. And if you'll open your mouth, His Spirit will show out. He will appear and He will do a work you could never ever conceive even under smooth circumstances. There simply aren't any. But you've got to know. The apostles and we should be like them are convinced that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and they're not going to let a crowd And they're not going to let a governing entity, or they're not going to let a family member, and they're not going to let a need or any other reality in human life keep them from being publicly loyal to Jesus Christ. Nothing at all. No one can back them down. No one can tell them, don't do what you're doing. Christ has said, preach the gospel to all nations, and there's no one big enough to convince them that they should be silent. And if you come today, you need to understand, Christ is calling you and moving upon you to have the same Spirit. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Now again, I'm not trying to create a bunch of people who are an atomic bomb in a playground. I don't mean that. You don't have to be ugly. You don't have to be rude about this. But you do have to be inflexible that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And no one's going to interfere with my walk in obedience to Him. We must obey God rather than men. No demon, no critic, no neighbor, no employer, no school, no governing body is to interfere with my obedience to Jesus. So when you respond to the invitation today, you've got to come determined that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Do not come unless, do not come today or any day unless you are determined Christ and Christ alone is going to be. You keep your seat. If Jesus isn't going to be your Lord alone. But if you're willing to embrace Him and Him alone is Lord, you come. You come today. You come every day if Jesus is going to be your Lord. Fully abandoned. Fully laid down. Fully open, Fully given to Jesus Christ. Nothing reserved. No hesitation. No backing up. Nothing at all. Everything given to Jesus Christ. Open and pure before Him and the world. If that's where your heart is today, you come. If it's not, stay where you are. I would encourage you, in fact, to be with Jesus the way Steve McQueen was with cars. I saw his movie this past week, and Steve McQueen was not only a Hollywood actor, but Steve McQueen was also a race car driver, and he enjoyed motorcycles as well. After test driving a particular race car, the fellow who, uh, who uh, designed it asked him, well, Steve, what would you think about this and this? And then he finally got to the question, Steve, what did you think about the brakes? And Steve McQueen answered, I don't know, I don't use them. When it comes to Jesus, there are no brakes. There's only an accelerator. When it comes to Jesus and obeying His will, you hit the accelerator. You, you don't do anything else. Let me tell you something. When Jesus bled and died on the cross, He held nothing back. He, he didn't just suffer, He died. He gave it all. And that sets sets the standard by which we measure everything in our lives in giving ourselves to Christ. We give it all. We withhold nothing from Him. We give it all. So what do I do this morning? It's very, very clear. Let me ask you a question. Let's imagine, let's imagine Harvey Weinstein asked your daughter or mother out this week on a date, Well, she's married. Well, that didn't matter to him. But let's imagine Harvey Weinstein asked your mother or daughter on a date this week. How would you feel about that? Well, frankly, I'd be revolted, wouldn't you? I'd be horrified. As my granddaddy used to say, that would get my dander up. I want you to feel that way, and God wants you to feel that way about the squishy middle where you are right now. You need to be horrified by the squishy middle. You need to be horrified by the hesitation. You need to be horrified that you're disaffected from a local church. That needs to break your heart. You, you need to be horrified that you're not certain you're safe. You, you need to treat that like the nation is treating Harvey Weinstein. You've got to be revolted by that. That's got to be ugly. You know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that repentance. You become horrified like that, you reject that, and you turn to the will of God. Now, the the next thing, not only repentance. In fact, Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. Repent. It is a nasty, dirty, stinking, rotten thing to be in the squishy middle because you're scattering others from Jesus like a wolf does. You're scattering sheep like a wolf does from the shepherd. Get upset with it. Be ashamed of it. Turn from it. But then, let's imagine the building's on fire, and the only place to go is the roof. Part of our roof is a flat roof, and the fire department calls, and they hold a um, large net below you, and they say, jump. Well, they've done this for decades. They've got an awful lot of experience. There's a whole fire science behind it. Are you going to trust them enough to jump? Today, Jesus says, you're in trouble with me if you're in the squishy middle. Jump. Take the leap. Make the decision. The Bible says in Romans 5.1, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's say they save you and rescue you. Let's say you hit the net. For the rest of your life, you're going to be silent about that event, aren't you? You're going to be completely silent, aren't you? You're not going to say another word about that great day when local firemen rescued you from a burning building, right? Oh, No. You're going to tell it and tell it out loud and tell it out gladly. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father who's in heaven. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who's in heaven. You give vocal expression to your commitment to me, I will do that before the throne before my Father. And that's what we do in this time. Would you quickly stand with me, please? And I want to pray for you. But all over this building, there are folks that need to leave the squishy middle and get right with Jesus. And say yes to Him. And I'm going to pray that you'll do that. And then we're going to sing a song. And we're not going to stay here all day. I don't know that we'll sing more than just a verse or two with that. But just as soon as we sing, you leave the squishy middle. You get yourself right with God. You treat your squishy middle like Harvey Weinstein. You trust the efficacy and adequacy and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And you come. You, you come to give your heart and life to Him. You come be part of this church. Get out of the squishy middle. There's no more of that today. We get out of the squishy middle.